Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and of the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad in your work. At the, hands of, at the work of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though all the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree and shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Let's uh, pray one more time before we, uh, we get into it. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. Uh, thank you for a good summer and the opportunity to be here with you, the things that we get to enjoy especially to enjoy the time we have with each other. Thank you for it. Um, now we just pray, Lord, that you would give us uh, ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of the gospel. Um, Lord, there's so much work that we so often have to do in this world, and we want to go into this year excited about those things, um, not because we are uh, so perfect, that we are so strong, or we are so... Um, equipped, Lord, but uh, we have you. And because of the work that you have done for us, we have everything we need in you. And so uh, we just pray that we would uh, understand that, uh, love that, and go away encouraged by that. Please show us that in your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. I was trying to figure out if I would share a joke I have a joke at the, the top of my page, but it's, it's literally too, too cringy even for me to read. So I'm not going to do it. Um, what I am going to do is uh, I'm going to take a book, uh, from, or a page rather, from the preaching book of Caleb DeLon. If you guys remember Caleb DeLon, he was the retreat speaker, a uh, buddy of mine from seminary. I'm going to take a page from his book, and I'm going to start this sermon uh, with two assumptions. And the reason I'm going to do that is because today we're going to talk about working and resting. And because we're going to talk about working and resting, I want to give you two assumptions, and I want you to think, as I explain them to you, uh, whether you believe those things are true or whether you don't believe those things are true. So let me give you one assumption about uh, working, and let me give you one assumption about resting. Assumption one about resting. In order to have rest... I must have control. In order to have rest, I must have control. Now, when I say rest, I hope you understand what I mean. When I say rest, I mean comfortability. I'm talking about contentedness. I'm talking about not being anxious. If you think rest, you might think of uh, sleepiness or sleeping or taking a nap. And that's appropriate because what happens when you have good rest is that you're in a comfortable condition, both in your mind and physically, in which you can have enough rest to wake up the next morning feeling energized. And that isn't really possible unless you have some kind of control over your situation. That your bed is the kind of bed you usually like and you control your schedule to go to bed at the time you need to go to bed so that you can find proper rest. But not just in physical rest, but even in a metaphorical sense, the way we feel comfortable, the way we feel content usually has something to do with how much control we have in our own world. Consider whatever environment it is you habitat. We call things my house or my room or my car, which is probably your parents' car, but still a car. The point of any of those things feeling comfortable giving you rest is your independence within them. 
that you can go where you want to go in a car and you can make your room what you want it to look like. And that gives you a sense of comfortability. If you're in a conversation, if you aren't liking the direction of a conversation, or if you're an introvert, you might have an urge to say, I got to get out of this conversation. And usually it's because of the lack of control in where things are going. Or maybe it's not your environment. Maybe it has something to do with your social circle. There's so many of us who are going to feel that so many things in the world are going okay if the friends that we want to be friends with are our friends. If they're happy, I'm happy. If I'm good with people, then everything seems right with the world. Or maybe you just like the feeling of control, not because you're particularly terrible, but because control is a nice feeling. I remember talking to people that I genuinely liked in high school, and I remember so often that there'd be periods where someone I knew who I liked found out that someone had a crush on them. And without revealing that they also had a crush on the other person, they would toy around with the person for a couple weeks and get them to try and woo them or earn them or work for their relationship status. And it seems manipulative, but they would express so often, it's nice to have control here when I don't have control in so many other situations. I think most obviously, we can feel that in our futures. You can feel very comfortable about how things are gonna go in the future if you take care of business right now, if you have good grades right now, or you get into a good school, or you're setting yourself up with volunteer work to have a good career status, or if you already have a job to get the promotion that you want, or the promotion that you're training for now. All of these things, doing them now, makes you feel some kind of contentment about your life and your future. The reality is that we will admit to ourselves that there is something about God's sovereignty that makes us reassess this every once in a while. We will be honest that we can't really control everything, but the problem is that we so often forget about that in the now. When you're in an immediate moment and feeling immediately anxious, it is very human and very normal to forget that God is in control and you yearn for as much control as you can have because of the ever-pressing problems of the now. Ask yourself the question, do you feel most at rest when you are in control? Assumption number two, and this has to do with work. Everything that we need to do is hard to do. The things that we have to do are so often the things that are hardest to do. Think about the things that you pray for. Think about the things that you are wanting to get done with school. Think about chores or jobs. You can even take it away from the practical and go into the spiritual. Think of how many times that you have prayed to be patient with people. Think about how many times you've asked God to take away frustration at friends or siblings or family members. So often those things, whether they're practical or spiritual, are the things that are most important to do, the essential things. And we pray to God because we need his strength to help us complete those things. Some of the hardest things to do are the essential things to do. Think about even the definition of the word work. Work can mean two things at the same time. It can mean your actual job, or it can mean something that's difficult. And both of those definitions of the word work are so often synonymous with each other. They mean the same thing. It's work to do work, or it's hard work to do my work. There's a difficulty in trying to appreciate God so often when this happens, because bitterness is very easily grown in the weeds of, God, why don't you just let me get by? I think so often, for those of us who know our Bibles well, it seems even biblical. If you go all the way back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve allowed sin to enter the world, and, God, and Adam was cursed in the garden, in Genesis 3, 17 and 19, God says to them, Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Getting by, it seems, just surviving, seems to be a difficult thing to do now. So often it seems like the hardest things to do are the things that are most essential to do. One of the things that I really want to get at this sermon is that both of those are misconceptions. 
not perfectly misconceptions, because the thing about misconceptions is so often they share a partial truth and not a complete untruth. But the partial untruth of that is something that can be discouraging when my desire for you guys going into this year is to be encouraged. To be encouraged that God has given you good things to do, and they are not too difficult to do. And I also want to encourage you that you can find rest in God doing those things. And the turn that you may not have thought we're going to take to go to the Bible to explain that is to understand the concept of the Sabbath. The Sabbath. Because I'm trying to make this a little bit condensed, I'm going to call this the simple Sabbath summary section. So say that five times fast if you want to challenge yourself. Simple Sabbath section. The idea of the Sabbath that I'm getting is coming from the very beginning of this psalm in the part that you usually forget when you read a psalm, and it's the inscription. It's not even beginning in the verse, except in the Hebrew, that is the first verse. And it says, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. Very simply put, the Sabbath was the day that God gave his people, the Israelites, to stop working and instead to rest. It was a commandment of God from the Ten Commandments, the very famous Ten Commandments, but it was nonetheless something that God obviously wanted his people to know was a good thing, that they may stop from their regular labor and relax. That is instituted not just as a command in the Ten Commandments, but actually from the very beginning of all of creation. In Genesis chapter 2, 2, God explains that after the seventh day of creation, he rested. And that is not an explanation of God running out of power and so he couldn't finish the job. He was making a particular point that everything to do in creation was finished. It was perfectly accomplished. It was done. And in doing that in creation, he used that as his jumping off point for his people to say, in the same way I have completed everything necessary in creation, I will complete everything that you need to accomplish in your life. God was explaining a kind of control he had for all of his people so that they might find rest in him. The idea behind the Sabbath was to rest knowing that God was going to finish everything that they needed to finish. He was explaining simply that he was going to provide for them. Work is difficult. Six days of the week, you will be sweaty and tired. But one day a week, you will rest without the anxiousness of if my crops are going to yield fruit because I, God, am going to make sure that it happens. You can find your rest in me and you can trust me for it. And the explanation of what that was supposed to yield in the attitude of the person was refreshment. Refreshment. Exodus chapter 23, 12, God explains that the Sabbath is supposed to leave you refreshed. The exact same word is used in 2 Samuel 16, 14, when King David drank water from the Jordan River. That he had the feeling of refreshment. The way you could understand it is that the Sabbath was supposed to feel like a tall glass of cold water in a week that felt like a scorchingly hot summer day. That was the point of the refreshment of the Sabbath. And the point that I'm explaining that to you is that that is supposed to counter one of our misconceptions. God is explaining to his people through the Sabbath that you are not supposed to find your rest when you are in control, but rather when you rest assured that God is in control, that God is going to handle things and the duties he has given to you, the most important duties, namely the duties of occupying the health of your soul, are all ultimately going to be finished and accomplished, not in what you do, but what God is, has, and will do for you. It is not our control that is restful, but God's control that gives us rest. Now this concept theologically was totally ruined in the culture that Jesus stepped into. By the time the religious leaders at that point called the Pharisees had totally destroyed the Sabbath and made it the opposite of what it needed to do. Basically, they had seen that rule as so important to demonstrate righteousness that they had actually made it terribly hard work to be able to not work. And people became exhausted on the Sabbath, coming out with creative solutions to not work. They basically had to work to not work. And the ridiculousness of this situation is very evidently pointed out by Jesus in Mark 2:27 when he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
Very simply put, it was supposed to be a blessing to the people and a benefit to the people, not a burden to the people. The whole point was that it was supposed to be a gift that God was freely giving to his people for them to be able to rest in him. Now, if you guys grew up in church, you're probably used to looking at the Pharisees in such a bad light that you will forget very quickly that they are human too. And the reason I'm reminding you of that is because this isn't just a Pharisaical issue, this is a human issue. And this is something we tend to do all the time subconsciously. When we think of completing the commands of God, we so often think that it is a hard thing to do or a burdensome thing to do. We take the grace out of the commandments of God. What we need to do becomes hard to do when we remove the motivation behind why we are doing something. Let me say that one more time. What we need to do becomes hard to do when we remove the motivations of why we are doing it. And I'm talking spiritually here. The Sabbath was supposed to be people accepting the gracious invitation of God who was giving them rest and he was giving them work, but it was not hard to do because of the work that God had done for them first. So why are we talking about this? The reason very simply is because I want with all of my heart for you guys to go into this year motivated. I want you guys to be the kind of people whose life verse for this year is Colossians 3.17. Colossians 3.17 says this, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. My goal is that you would be motivated by the knowledge of God to be able to do everything for his glory. And that is not going to begin with you working yourselves into an emotional state by which we think we can earn our own righteousness. There is only one way to be able to do things genuinely because we want to do them for God, and that's knowing we don't need to do them for God in a salvific sense. This is the goal of this sermon, that you would know you cannot work for God's glory until you rest in God first. You need to be able to rest in God so that you will be able to work for God. And we'll explain that as we go, as we just take a quick look at Psalm 92. I've massively enjoyed this study this week, and if you have questions about it, come talk to me. I'm just basically going to be grazing over it to try and give you this point. But let me break down these three reasons very quickly of how you can look at God's work and find rest in his work and be motivated to work for his glory yourself. Three things. And the first one is compiled in verses 1 to 4 of Psalm 42, and it is this. Rest in God's work for you. Rest in God's work for you. Now, if you look at verses 1 to 4, and you observe them, you'll notice that it doesn't actually look like anybody is resting. It actually looks like people are incredibly busy in a worship service. And the reason I say worship service is because they're describing things that sound like a worship service. They're declaring and singing the praises of God. But not only are they declaring truth, they're organizing themselves for declaring that truth in musical formats. If you look, there's musical instruments playing. There's the lute, there's the harp, there's the lyre, and people are singing. Really what it looks like is people organizing themselves for a Sunday morning service. And part of that is probably familiar to you when I use the word Sabbath starting the sermon. Because we very often call the Sunday service the Sabbath. The reality is that it does take time, not only in this worship service in our text, but in our worship service and many other worship services, to organize it. It takes effort. People are preparing themselves in the week. People have been preparing themselves for many years of their life to play instruments, to be in the word, to prepare a sermon, even to set up chairs. Everything about the service has a purpose, and most often, it doesn't seem to be, when you know the work involved, restful. So the question is, why are people resting on the Sabbath when it seems contradictory? 
And when the Pharisees were asking this same kind of question to Jesus when it seemed like he was breaking the Sabbath, this is what he said to them. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 12, Jesus says to the Pharisees that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And this worship service is following that exact same logic from verse 1 where he says, it is good. It is good to do something on the Sabbath. And the things that it is good to do is to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises of gladness to the Lord. In a sense, it is easy to find your joy and your gladness and be able to sing to the Lord when you recognize something that the psalmist here is recognizing. And that explanation is the four in verse four. If you look at the four in verse four, it is giving you the because of information being processed by the psalmist and everyone in the worship service that is motivating them from the heart out in their actions to worship God. And the reality is that they are recognizing that the Lord's work has made them glad, that God's work has motivated them working worship for him. If you look at verse four, very closely, it's interesting to see a detail. In the beginning of verse four, he says work, singular. But in the second part of verse four, he uses works, plural. Work, singular, and works, plural. And that's not accidental by the psalmist because both of them have different connotations. God's work, singular, is talking about something God has done. It is completed, it is accomplished, it is finished. While meanwhile, his works are concerned with the things he is actively doing. He has not stopped doing. He is always involved in creation and accomplishing something. And what he is doing on behalf of his people is demonstrating, verse 2, his faithfulness and his steadfast love. And the work that he has accomplished is demonstrating that perfectly. Psalm 92 is explaining to us that our day to day needs to be lived not in our works to God, but in God's gracious work to us. And us on this side of history have the greatest demonstration of the faithfulness and steadfast love of God's character to us. And that is the accomplished, perfect work of Jesus Christ. And there's something about that work that is supposed to explain to you that what you do for God is not going to please God because what you need to do to please God can't be done by you, but was done for you in Jesus Christ. John 17, 4, Jesus himself prays to the Father and says, I have accomplished, full stop. I have accomplished the work that the Father has given me to do. And Hebrews 9.12 says that Jesus secured for us an eternal redemption once and for all, a completed work. And he did it, not through our works, but through his own blood. Now to clarify, I am not telling you that you owe a response. I'm actually asking you the question, what is your attitude when you hear the truth of the gospel? When you ask yourself the question, has Jesus Christ died for me? And you affirm that truth in your heart, does it do something to your attitude to make you wanna live life differently? I'm asking. John Walvoord, a particular theologian who had an amazing quote said it this way. Christ's great act of condescension in becoming man and his willingness to be completely humiliated in a death on the cross is set before us as the supreme example of what our attitude should be. If Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, was willing to be obedient unto death, how much more should sinners saved by grace who owe everything to God give back to God who saved them the life that he has redeemed? Now again, to clarify, I am not telling you that your attitude is what makes you right with God. I am asking you, do you have an attitude that wants to give your life to God because God has given you eternal life through his son Christ? When you do things that you know are worthy of God's glory, do you recognize that God's glory is worth much, much more than you could give him? 
It's worth, like the psalmist said, all of your mornings and all of your nights, which you can't give him, but he has given to the Father on your behalf so you can be right with him. Does that make you want to do something about it? Not in a discouraging kind of way, but a way that has encouraged you to to do what Paul has explained in Ephesians chapter 5, 19 and 20. When Paul says, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart and giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise of that and the promise of Psalm 92 is that if you are encouraged in the work of the Lord that he has done for you, you will be encouraged in your heart to want to work at giving your life back to him in worship. Rest in God's work for you. The second thing he explains, we are to rest in God's work against evildoers. We are to rest in God's work against evildoers. And this is between verses 5 and 9. Now, it seems very strange and even disturbing to see the turn that he makes in Psalm 92, where all of the sudden, the psalm's mind is occupied with the eternal death of God's enemies. I was thinking today of a song that I sang when I was a student about giving thanks to God, and I was almost laughing at how disturbing it seemed to switch that uh, from positive things about salvation to negative things about God destroying people. And it's only funny so long as you don't actually believe it. And then when you believe it, it starts to become something that seems very dreadful. Seems like the last thing you would ever want to sing about. But nonetheless, the psalmist makes a big point about how important this is to know. To quickly tell you two reasons why. Verse 5 says that when he was thinking about God's thoughts, that is God's sovereign action in creation, controlling everything, this is the thing he thought of. He said, God's thoughts are so deep, like, for example, the destruction of the wicked. That seems strange, but it's an incredibly important point to see a holy person talking about God suddenly think it's really important for us to praise him for the destruction of the wicked. And he doubles down on that by honing in this section on verse 9 with two fours and two beholds. And the word behold is basically the Hebrew way of saying, pay close attention to this, this is very important. And what's really important is to recognize that God's enemies will be destroyed and they will all perish. And the question is, why? Without delaying the point, this is why I think there's a particular reason why, as it has to do with the Sabbath and as it has to do with resting in God's work. God created the world in seven days and on the seventh day, he rested. And on day seven, God knew what was going to happen on the last day. From day seven to day, last day, God has known every single thing that is going to happen, and he has orchestrated it absolutely perfectly. And the consummation of that is something dreadful, but nonetheless something important. Second Peter chapter three, verse seven, where Jesus explains, or Peter explains, the heavens and the earth that now exist are being stored up for fire and being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And the question is, if this is in Psalms in the Old Testament and Peter is making note of it in the New Testament, is that saying something important, and the reason it is important, is because the destruction of the wicked isn't the only thing that's going to die on the last day. The most important thing that is going to die on the last day that God has ordained for the world is death itself. Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 to 14. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Not only will God's enemies, people, be destroyed, But God is going to destroy the destroyer. He's going to destroy death itself. How good it is for us to understand how death itself will be destroyed. But how terrifying it is to remember that there are people who won't. In verse 6, they're described as stupid and foolish. 
don't get the psalm wrong by thinking that being calling someone stupid is a way to insult them. What he doesn't mean is to insult them. What he's saying, which kind of sounds insulting, actually, if you think about it, is that someone has a brain and they're not using it. What he's saying is the evidence of God being in control, leading to all of these things, is evident to all people, but it will still be ignored as a warning because of the grip of sin on the people in this world. And we should understand that in a humble sense, not because we're excited about their destruction, but rather because we recognize we should be the people who are destroyed. When we see our actions as a result of hearts that long for sin, we are evil doers. We are doers of evil, literally workers. Our sin is a demonstration that we are not completely free of sin and death yet. And it should humbly move us to remember that worship is supposed to be joyful, but it is also supposed to be done in a sobering sense. God is a fearful and powerful God, and we remember him for who he truly is. We remember him in a kind of sense where we know we should have been the people in this category. And even though we are terrified at the thought of this last day, it does say something essential, which is that God is king and his perfect plan to ruin the whole world of sin, ours involved, is all going to be completed because he is the most high king and he is the Lord God Almighty. And all powers against him should sober us to respond to him appropriately. And then finally, we have the turn. We have the turn in which the psalmist turns from the scene in front of him, the destruction of the whole world, and he considers where he is at, and suddenly his spirits are lifted in a particularly encouraging way. And that's in verses 10 to 15, in which I hope you see the resting in God's work in us. We saw God's work for us. We saw God's work against evildoers. Now I hope you can see resting in God's work in us. Resting in God's work in us. The big turn ends up happening in verse 11. And you can see that this scene before him is something that is not happening to him. It is a downfall of God's enemies that he has seen and he has heard of the doom of evil assailments. assailants. There's a category of people whom he is not, and the result of that is not a sense of being angry or satisfied in their destruction, but rather taking himself before God and recognizing the gracious position he's been put in. God has, verse 10, exalted him. He has picked him up from the ground, and he's put him in a glorious position. And the second is that he's been anointed. Verse 10 says that he has oil poured over him. That sounds terrible. I work with peanut oil on the very, very few times that I cook, and I do not want anyone pouring peanut oil on my head. It would be terrible. But verse 10 is not explaining it in that sense. It is talking about the anointing process of a priest. And in so many places, the anointing of God's servant, Jesus Christ, to do the work he needed to do. And what it is talking about is a consecration. It is a renewal. It is beginning something from scratch. It is the psalmist recognizing God has taken him out of the world, a worker of unrighteousness, and he has made him a worker of righteousness. His job occupation has been totally changed because of a qualification God has given to him and not one that he has worked out of himself. So he's been restored to the service God designed him to do. What he's trying to explain to us is another massively important thing about the Sabbath, which was that the people of God were supposed to remember they were a liberated people. They were a people who were slaves and they have been made free. And I mean that literally. Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 15 
Moses is speaking to a generation of Israelites who were supposed to be told of the glories of God and they weren't because the generation before them was mainly wiped out because of their treacherous sin against God. And as he is looking at a new generation, he reminds them of the history of Israel and he reminds them of the Ten Commandments. And when he explains to them the Sabbath, he explains it this way, Deuteronomy 5.15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was supposed to be a reminder that the people of God weren't unwilling workers. They were people whose contract with the devil, whose compensation was eternal death and damnation, has been bought back by God. And the satisfaction that his people find in that is that they spend the rest of their lives desiring to worship him. The good master has bought us back. And we know that's the case with our souls because our sin even now reminds us that we were slaves of sin. Titus 3.3 says that we ourselves were once slaves to various passions. We felt things and we had to do things. We were slaves to our sin. And Romans 6.19 says that we once presented our bodies as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. No matter how much we tried, there were two altars always before us. And God deserved our whole life as a sacrifice to him always. And we couldn't help but go to the altar of the devil, damnation, and darkness and offer all of our works on that. And that was the kind of people we used to be. But the reality is that though we might not have the same Sabbath strictures, remembering the Sabbath reminds us that we are not slaves anymore and have been liberated to something so much better. Galatians 5.1 says this, that for freedom, Christ has set us free. To stand firm, therefore, and to not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And again in verse 13, that you were called to freedom. Romans 6, 17 says, Thanks be to God, for you were once slaves of sin and have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. God has told you to be obedient. But you know what else has told you, if you are a Christian, to be obedient? Your own heart. Your own heart has been bought back in such a way that you want to and find joy in telling yourself to be obedient. Not because God needs your works. God desires your works because they are a demonstration of your heart. Everything you needed to do has been done in Christ and the reality of doing work for God comes from a heart that is first resting in God. If you think about as many tragic things that this world is teaching you as possible, you will come up with many, many things. And I'm not talking about general world. I'm talking about your world, your schools, your family members, your government, your life is controlled by so many tragically false ideas. And here's one of the most ironic tragedies of them all. This world loves to use the word liberation to talk about slavery. They love to tell you that you are liberating yourself from tradition and you are liberating yourself from confinement by doing all of the things that God says is leading towards destruction that it is liberating to call marriage something other than God has called it. It is liberating to move away from any form of godliness and into immensely different views of sexuality. It is liberating to leave fidelity behind. It is good to leave accountability behind. It is good to leave pregnancy behind. It is good to leave sex within marriage behind. It is liberating to leave all of these things behind. And the reality is that it is all demonstrating slavery. And it is a slavery that we understand, not because we hate those people, but because we were those people. 
we're not anymore. It's not because we suddenly became perfect people, but it's because we have waited for Jesus and he has come and he has liberated us. One of my favorite songs ever is a song that we only get to sing really on Christmas. Now that I have worship privileges, maybe I can change that, but regardless, it is one of the greatest expectations of why people do what they do because Jesus has done something for us first. The first verse says this, Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our sins and our fears release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Jesus Christ, fully God, was born fully man to set you free. God condescended himself to live in a human body forever so he could represent a perfect human life for you. That you would be perfect towards God, not because of you, but because of him. Because of the love that he has for you. And the question is, does not that make you want to worship? Is the result of your heart someone who wants to give their life in the service of God because he has already given his life to preserve yours for eternity? Doesn't that make you want to do something about it? And if you're wondering exactly what you should do or what you should look like, verses 12 to 15 will help you. Verse 12 asks, do you want to be a palm tree? Yes, you heard me correctly. Do you want to be a palm tree? This is what I mean. A palm tree grows up because its leaves absorb from the sun and it naturally grows. Do you want to put yourself in a position where you're not growing up in obedience and godliness because you're scared of the ground, but because you are reaching for the sun? You're reaching for Jesus Christ, the son of God, who in Revelation 21.4 is so bright that we don't need a sun in the New Jerusalem because Jesus is that bright. Do you want to live your life in that brightness in such a way that you don't need to force yourself to grow into godliness, but you naturally grow in it under his brightness? Do you want to be a palm tree? Verse 13 asks you the question, do you want to flourish? There's an easy solution for that. Plant yourself in the house of the Lord. I'm not talking about doing a lock-in every single night. Planting yourself in the Lord not only means being with other believers who have the same mission in life as you do, it also means putting yourself in the direct presence of God always. Do you want to be someone who's not terrified of the fact that God watches you always? That God sees you in everything you do? You will be fearful of that if you think that God will hate you when you sin. But when you know God has forgiven all your sin, you will love it. Because you will know that everywhere you go, God has promised you eternal safety in his arms. And you will know that if you plant yourself in the presence of the Lord. Do you want to flourish? Verse 14. Do you want to bear fruit in old age? When you get old, you will have seen more death more family members die, more friends forsake you, more people abandon you, more people close to you lie to you, and more groans and aches in your body than you could have imagined at this point. Do you want to get to that point and not help but be righteous? Because no matter how many tragic explanations of the depravity of this world have been demonstrated to you, no matter how bad the world has now seemed, God has given you a lifetime of evidence that he is good and you have a lifetime of God-honoring work to demonstrate to him. Not because he needs it, because you have wanted to give him it. Do you want to get old and just sinless? Do you want to get old and righteousness is second nature to you? Not because you're so great, but that God through his Holy Spirit has done a good work through you. You can get there. I promise you, you can get there. You can't get to be a perfect person because only Jesus Christ was perfect, but he died for you in such a way that you can live for his righteousness and it will be the most satisfying life you could possibly live, but it will only happen if you follow Hebrews 10.22. If you draw near to the throne of grace with a true heart, 
full of assurance in faith. Not in you, but in him. You will live a life of righteousness only if you first consider Psalm 84 too. If you ask yourself the question and declare forthrightly with a firm answer that it is better to spend a day in the courts of God than a thousand days elsewhere. And you will follow it if you appreciate the words of a song by Isaac Watts, a song called Sweet is the Work, a song I read this week because it is based almost word for word off of this psalm. And verse three of that psalm says this, my heart shall triumph in the Lord and bless his works and bless his word. Thy works of grace, how bright they shine, how deep thy counsels, how divine. If you want to be a person who's worked toward righteousness your whole life, it starts with considering how God has worked your life into eternity because of his righteousness first. If you consider the work of God in verse 15, 15 and ask yourself the question, if you believe it and you do, you can go into this year, this school year, this sports year, this club year, this family year, this friends year, whatever your year looks like, you can go into that year with confidence that you can love God because he will demonstrate to you that he has loved you first. Ask yourself first, 15, do I wish to declare that the Lord is upright? He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Consider it and redeclare it to God if you've never done that. Declare to God that he is good, that he is right, that in his uprightness he has become my unshakable, gracious foundation of grace. And there is no unrighteousness in him. In fact, he has taken and punished my unrighteousness on the cross for eternity. Let's pray. Father, like, like you've revealed to us in Psalm 119, you are good and you do good. You are good and you've done good. You are perfect, God, and we love you for it. There's nothing that we have done to deserve your love and grace, but you have given us so much in your son Christ. So please help us to love you and trust you and obey you from the heart. Please demonstrate to us by your graciousness and by giving us a heart full of faith that we might live this life in a way that we can worship you truly. Let our lives be an offering to you and please take our hearts away from the things of this world and put them in your word. Saturate us with your truth so that we can go into this world so excited to demonstrate the truth of your son Christ and see the transformation of your Holy Spirit upon our hearts, change everything. Thank you for this time, Lord, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. All right. Thank you guys for paying attention. I appreciate it very much. I thank you for uh, whatever it is that you've done to try and retain this, whether note-taking or just trying to remember one thing that you can take away, one thing you can go home to try and um, appreciate and meditate on and ask yourself if you trust the truth of the gospel. Um, if you don't or if you have questions, talk to me, talk to your small group leaders who you're about to meet with um, and just take that time to uh, pour your heart out in such a way that you can walk away from here more assured in the goodness of God than less. Um, so I think what we're going to do is um, I think half of you are going to go to your regular um, spot. Uh, what we're going to do is uh, junior high boys it's the, um, raise your hand if you're a junior high boy. Let me count you. Okay, I think it'll be okay. You, it's gonna be tight, but you guys are going to go uh, into my office for your small group meeting today. And then um, the, uh, Kami, which group is it you're with? I can't remember. Yes, yeah, so the junior high girls, your guys are gonna meet over here. Uh, so junior high boys in there, junior high girls there. Um, and then high school girls, you guys can meet up in the room. And if, you, if that's not enough space, then I think you're more than welcome to come down here if you want. Um, and then the high school boys are in your regular spot. Cool. Thank you, guys. And then at about 9.30, if you could come back, and I'll just have some directions of how we can help for the uh, women's worship ministry tomorrow morning. So 
around 9.30-ish or so. Thanks, guys. Zachary Chen, you are a strong man. 